Hear that? It's the sound of you catching up on all the latest and greatest fintech news, trends, and updates thanks to Streetworthy, Yield Street's bi-weekly newsletter. Stay in the know with CEO Melinda Mahiri as he takes a closer look at what's happening in the fintech space, then breaks down what each story could mean for investors like you. Give your portfolio the edge it deserves and subscribe to Streetworthy on LinkedIn today. Welcome to The Yield, the official podcast of Yield Street. Every week, we bring you the latest market insights across our asset classes and products from subject matter experts. Our aim is to break the outdated mold of investing and help you add financial fuel to your ambitions through innovative investing products and strategies, typically unavailable to most investors. Realize your next level with The Yield. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. The views you are about to hear do not necessarily reflect the views of Yield Street. This podcast is intended to be strictly informational and is not intended to be and should not be construed as a research report, investment advice, or the offer or sale of securities or any investment product. Now, let's get into the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Yield. Make sure to subscribe to the show and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube, and leave a review if you're enjoying the content. In case we haven't met before, I'm your host, Peter Kerr, and I'm the Director of Product Marketing here at Yield Street. Today, I'm joined by Michael Ehrlich, Director of the Layer Research Institute and NJIT Martin Tuckman School of Management. Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's delightful to be back. Yeah, it's great. I think I was trying to remember, we had you back, I think, um, late summer, early fall or so? Yeah, close to a little less than a year ago, I think. That's right. Yeah, I remember quite a bit around markets too at that time. And I know I'll you know, have a little bit of a different flavor this time, but uh, as always, appreciate your comments uh, and insights around you know, the current market backdrop as well. Uh, but to start, thought maybe you could uh, remind everyone and walk everyone through a little bit about yourself. Sure. So I'm the director of the Lair Research Institute for Business, Technology, and Society. This handsome fellow over my shoulder, that's Henry Lair. And so he donated money for the, for the Institute. And we basically work on projects for stakeholders. And so we have academic, uh, corporate, uh, nonprofit, and, uh, and, uh, and other, other stakeholders who basically, uh, we, we work, you know, we do research, uh, we do outreach uh, and community engagement. Uh, we're we're going to have in, in August a conference on uh, real estate and property technology. We had one last year on financial technology, fintech. Uh, so we're looking on kind of new ideas and new projects. Uh, probably the biggest update is, is about the NJIT Martin Tuckman School of Management, where, I'm, where we reside. We have two kind of pillars of excellence, the reasons why you might want to pay attention to us. So there's lots of business schools. One is that we really have excellence in innovation, entrepreneurship, and commercialization of technology. We were recently ranked 34th nationally uh, for, by, by, uh, by uh, Princeton Review. And uh, the other pillar of excellence is our business analytics and business, business science. And we, we have a PhD program, and I'm proud to announce that two of my PhD students just graduated. So again, we're moving forward on all, 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 all fronts. Well, congratulations. Um, please do not send me, um, you know, their, their seminal work for their, uh, their PhD. I don't, I don't know if I'll have the chance to read it. No problem. You know, it's, it's, uh, they, they teach me a lot of stuff, which is very helpful. <laughs> so, you know, topic of the conversation today, um, you know, a lot of, we want to spend a lot of time around the future of employment. You know, certainly there are a lot of driving forces in terms of, you know, what is kind of maximum employment going forward, you know, in terms of the macro, and then also, you know, just some of the underlying dynamics and how everything switches, especially coming out of the backdrop of, of COVID. So maybe to start, you know, you could kind of just walk everyone through, you know, some high level thoughts um, on where you see kind of in, employment going overall or the workforce. So, yeah, no, no, it's, it's great. Uh, the work. So, so everybody's going to work, but things keep changing. 
and there are three main drivers of change and each of them has kind of some different effects and they're all kind of going in somewhat similar in different directions. So the first one is COVID. And so we'll talk a little bit, I'll just tell you about what's coming forward here, talking a little about COVID, both some of the short-term effects in the workforce for COVID and what are maybe some of the long-term effects from COVID as well. The second one is technological change. There's been a lot of technological change that is really affecting how and how we work, where we work, and how and and, and how we do our jobs. And so I'm going to talk about uh, both again some of the short-term effects, which are kind of uh, were accelerated by COVID, and some of the long-term effects in terms of AI, machine learning, automation. And then the third topic, near and dear to my heart as I get older, is the aging workforce. You know, uh, the workforce is getting older and older. Um, we think of retirement at 65. But people now are, have life expectancies out to 85, and so they're going to live for a lot longer. And we need to think about ways to create new contracts and new arrangements so that we can keep our productive workforce productive for longer in their lives and find ways for them to engage. And there are a lot of challenges to work through. I'll talk about some of those challenges and maybe some of those opportunities as well. So that's, 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 kind, of, that's kind of, I think, the, the plan for today for me. No, that's great. And I also think, you know, um, there are all these kind of tangential effects too, with something as important as the workforce. Certainly it's a large source of income for a lot of, you know, potential consumers in the U S economy and really dictates a lot about people's confidence, which drives a lot of how markets perform and how economies grow overall. So I think there's so many different tie-ins too, that we'll be able to discuss overall. Um, perhaps to start, maybe you can, you know, one, you know, obviously I know this is an area of passion for you, Maybe you could walk everyone through, you know, how come you're so knowledgeable and passionate about, you know, the workforce or the future of the workforce. So we actually have a, a project that we're working on. Uh, we, 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 again, we, we do a lot of work in sustainability. That brings me to a good bit of this. And of course, everybody's been working on various COVID related issues lately and technological change is just kind of unavoidable. So these are streams that the Lair Research Institute focuses on in general. We're looking to support both the workforce, but also corporations in terms of how to prepare and kind of you know maximize their efficiency and sustainability. And honestly, the workforce is one of the great resources of any country and certainly the United States. And But there are challenges and we need to address those challenges and recognize them and kind of adapt where we can and, and adjust where we have to. And I'm just kind of, before we get started, I'm just kind of curious, you know, you know, it's kind of a, a little bit of a, of a conundrum, at least in terms of like, you know, what your philosophy is around the market, but, um, or, you know, certainly like a more democratic versus maybe uh, communistic type approach, but how also in thinking about all this does, you know, minimum wage and other factors kind of play a role in workforce? Yeah. So, so wages and wage contracting is actually a large part of the problem with the aging workforce. Um, you know, we, we have a, we have kind of a natural cycle to uh, our life's lives that we kind of start off not very productive and we kind of get to be more productive. And then at some point in our life, we become somewhat less productive and that's normal. However, wages are what we affectionately call downward sticky, which is to say they go up, but it's very hard to make wages go down. And so what ends up happening is at some point, there's kind of this divergence where the wages are up and the productivity starts dropping off and corporations get pretty uh, unhappy about that. There was some news recently about IBM trying to get rid of some of their older workers because they weren't as productive. And that's a reality. So the trick is going to be to try to figure out how do we think about recontracting in a way that where wages can track productivity, but still keep people with their, you know, their human capital they've, they've accrued and being productive in, in the workforce for longer than their, you know, just early retirement age. Oh, very, very interesting. So, so maybe let's kick off with some of, you know, the, the topics that I think are top of mind to you, especially around kind of the, the core three uh, points of discussion. So COVID. COVID is a fact of life. 
Um, you know, when we, I remember in March, we all thought this was going to be a few weeks or a few months. And of course, uh, here we are in year three now, you know, still kind of talking about COVID. Um, COVID has had uh, several effects in, in the workforce. The first is that uh, we've, we've actually had a lot of people leave the workforce. Um, and a lot of people who are leaving the workforce, you know, um, used, to be, used to be that when somebody got a life-threatening illness, uh, maybe cancer or something or other, they would have kind of a, a recontracting, a renegotiating the relationship with work. Suddenly work is maybe not the most important thing in their life. Suddenly they realize they're not gonna live forever. And they start thinking about what's actually important to me, my family, my bucket list, my whatever. And so suddenly they start thinking about sort of reprioritizing how they're gonna live their lives. Well, with COVID, virtually everyone in the world has had actually a life-threatening moment all at roughly at the same time. And so what's, what's happening, I think, is that, is that a lot of people are rethinking their relationship to work. And so what we're calling the, you know, you know uh, whatever the, the, whatever, the, the uh, great retirement or you know, basically where a lot of people are leaving, you know, the great quitting where people are leaving the workforce, is I think people rethinking that, geez, is this really what I want to do with my life? And is this really the priority? And that is actually both a short-term effect in terms of creating short-term shortages of workers, which is having upward effect on wages, particularly for lower income workers. Um, so things like the minimum wage, minimum wage we have right now is so distant from what the minimum wage is in the functional workforce that it's basically functionally irrelevant. You could raise the minimum wage and it would have no effect because virtually no one earns the minimum wage. And so, um, so I think that, that you know, when you talk about minimum wage, until it gets to something that's even approach, approaching market wages, it's gonna have no effect whatsoever. More important though, is that, uh, and long-term, is that people may be thinking about their relationship to work differently. If, if you thought about, you know, again, a lot of people think about, you know, work, identify themselves with their work, and especially as they get older, they kind of identify themselves with their jobs, and if they lose their jobs, they kind of lose their identity. I think younger people are quite smartly and quite appropriately basically thinking that work is work, life, but it's not the same as life, and it's not the same as their self-identity. And that's going to mean that employers can't just rely upon their branding or their relationship to maintain workers. They're going to have to provide them with, you know, good alternatives, good, good opportunities, uh, play, uh, you know, and, and, and wages. And so just kind of, you know, thinking about that a little bit more, uh, you know, how do you think people's interest in work has evolved, right? So certainly there've been more distractions. Do you think people are less willing to take jobs that they may have previously been very excited for? Do you feel as though people are, you know, being more selective in the type of opportunities? What are some of those other dynamics just as far as like more of the behavioral side of, of, of these individual workers? So people are creatures of habit. We do what we do and we tend to do it over and over again. I mean, I don't know about you, but you know, I get up in the morning and I brush my teeth and I pretty much do it the exact same way every single morning. You know, I don't really think about it deeply. And there's just a whole series of activities that we do just because that's the way we do it. And we've done it that way the last seven days or 24 days or 395 days, and we're going to do it again. Going to work actually kind of falls in that category. People get up and they go to work. And, and, it's, and a lot of people had terrible jobs, right? I mean, a lot of people had, you know, mediocre jobs or not so good jobs in, in uh, uh, hospitality or restaurant or food service or leisure or a bunch of different places. They lost their jobs. They got some money to allow them to stay at home through unemployment benefits or through, through payments from the government, uh, childcare payments as well. And I think they recognize, wow, there's more to life than just getting up every single morning and like having a terrible day in the back in the dark, washing the dishes or something. And you know, maybe there's more than I can do with myself. And, and they found opportunities to retrain themselves or look, and they're looking for new opportunities. And so, and with the, and that's created a, with a shortage of workers, they're having better opportunities to negotiate their unionizing at a greater rate. 
uh, than they have in the last several decades. I mean, since the 80s, uh, we're seeing higher rates of unionization suddenly, uh, where we, 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 which we haven't seen for, for decades. You know, so we're seeing workers collectivize and, and, and workers reprioritize what their thinking is. And again, COVID forced them out of their rut, forced them out of that habit, brushing their teeth the same way every single morning, and made them say, hey, let's think about this. This, you know, this staying at home and, you know, riding my bike more and eating better, whatever, that's, that's not so bad. How do, I, how do I sustain that? And maybe instead of being a dishwasher, you're a school aide, and now you're part of a unionized workforce, and you're getting a better wage, and you're, you know, doing something more productive with children or something or other, and they just feel better about themselves, and, they've, and, they, and they're getting higher wages at the same time. Well, I'm kind of curious on that, if you don't mind kind of expanding. So, so is it that, you know, there are just more workers now that are looking for the same or equal number of potential job openings, or has there really been a large number of job openings that have created some new opportunities that maybe previously didn't exist? Or is everyone just kind of just looking now for more, looking at different opportunities? So I think there's two things going on. One is the pure supply demand effect, right? That basically the supply of workers, some of the people stepped out of the workforce, some people retired early during COVID and whatever. And so there's a pure supply demand effect where there's a, the supply is lower and demand is increasing and rising. And so we're seeing wages being pulled up by pure supply demand effects. And people are able to get or quit and, get, and basically get better jobs just because there's a shortage of workers relative to the demand. But there's a second effect, which is probably deeper and longer term. And that's what I call the cultural focus, where, you know, again, if you would ask people, of my generation or, or, or Gen X or whatever, you know, basically uh, they, they often identified themselves with their work. You know, I, you know, what, you know, you go to a cocktail party, you know, who are you? You tell them what job you do. Um, and that was kind of how you identified yourself. I would say the cultural focus is shifting away from that. You know, uh, WeWork at one point tried to have uh, an organization called We Live, which was supposed to be like right above WeWork. And you know something? Younger people hated that. They don't want to live where they work. They would like to live where they live and work where they work and have those things separate. And so, so we live, we work hasn't done so well either, but, but we, will, we live was a catastrophic failure and never, never really took off because that is not the way people want to live. And so this cultural focus, I think, is longer term. And even when supply and demand get more into balance on, on the labor force, I think this cultural focus is going to persist. So, so you, you also kind of mentioned something around, you know, the, the growth of new labor unions, or at least the increased participation in, in labor unions. And I'm curious how much you think of kind of the push-pull dynamics of employer-employee relationships kind of are cyclical in some respect over really long periods of times, or at least oscillate between, you know, who's kind of got the most negotiating leverage. And so I'm curious knowing how much, you know, labor unions kind of, you know, went away over the course of the 70s, 80s, 90s, and, and into, you know, not too long ago. Do you feel like this is the beginning of an uprising of more and more kind of, you know, pro-worker type negotiating power where you see more unions coming out, more and better negotiating terms for workers overall? Or do you think that this is just a short-term blip? So it's hard to tell a short-term blip from a, from a longer-term trend. We're not far enough into it to really know the answer to that. But certainly, if you looked, it, certainly there was a long cycle where unionization increased all the way up until about 1980. Uh, unionization rates increased, uh, you know, types of different types of jobs found themselves unionizing. Post-1980, kind of Reagan revolution, unions came under pressure and came under increasing pressure. Uh, and they've come under increasing pressure for, for decades. And so we've seen unionization rates go from, uh, for private companies, you know, 30, 40% down to below 10% unionized workforce. And look, there's nothing, it's not that unions are perfect. It's just that as you see larger and larger corporations, where corporations gain more and more oligopolistic power in terms of their hiring, 
again, used to be that if you were a nurse and you're working for a hospital and, you, and they weren't treating you right in your hospital, you could go to one of the other hospitals you know, in the community. There were used to be other hospitals. Now, all those hospitals are owned by one hospital group. And so basically, when you try to go from one to the other, they kind of treat you the same because you're the same employee and they basically have the same you know, policies and packages. And so, you, so as, a, as a worker, you have like less leverage than you ever had. The way to counter that traditionally is to create unions, is have workers kind of teaming up together to sort of create more market power that counteracts the increasing market power we've seen from corporations. So I don't think unions are a panacea. I think really we'd be better off having kind of you know, more antitrust kind of and, and more, more kind of free markets. I'm kind of a, a you know, bit of it bit focused that way. But if you're going to have really large corporations, then you really probably want to have unions that can actually help protect workers and, you know, and, and protect their interests. And so I don't know. I, I don't know where we're going to go in the future. Certainly, we're seeing an uptick right now. Supply demand supports it. But I think that we may see a resurgence of antitrust really trying to break up some of the big guys and stop some of the big guys from behaving. So when, it, when, it's a, when it's a selling a product, we call it a monopoly. When it's a buying a labor force, we call it a monopsony. And so what we have is very monopsonistic uh, hiring by companies. And so you know, there's really only, again, in healthcare, there's, there's one big healthcare employer in most communities. You know, I'm in New York, there's a couple of them, so there's more competition. But in most communities, there's just one big health chain that's kind of engulfed and devoured all of the hospitals and clinics. And so, so you just don't see any sort of you know, com- competitive markets that you think of you know, kind of Adam's, a la Adam Smith. And so I'm kind of curious you know, to that front, and I know there's both government interjection, there's you know, certainly unionizing, but I think overall, you know, especially on real t- in real terms, wages have fair, you know, fairly significantly not outpaced other costs. And so I'm just kind of curious, you know, and I know you mentioned uh, more antitrust type behavior, but what else do you think would kind of be important to, you know, help see some real wage growth, which, you know, I think is finally starting to come really late in a cycle um, for lack of a better term. So Peter, um, you, you, really yeah. nailed, you really nailed the key issue there. And that is productivity growth. Productivity growth for Americans, it's a little bit, it's a little bit variable, but it's pretty steady. Americans have become steadily more productive, you know, year after year, again, with small bumps and along the way, up and down, but basically steadily more productive. But the share of that, of those earnings, which have been going to workers, has steadily fallen. Partly that's a matter of unionization, but partly that's also a matter of just corporations getting larger and more powerful, where they can they can appropriate the extra productivity for themselves and the shareholders as opposed to dividing it. I mean, traditionally through the 50s and 60s, it was divided roughly 50-50 between shareholders and workers. Post-1980, it has gone almost entirely to shareholders with almost none of, there's been a lot of productivity growth, but almost none of it has actually gone to workers. And so unions are one way to address that. And as you point out, government and regulations will be another way as well. And those things will probably work together. So, you know, kind of a lot of what you're talking about was this, you know, what, what also, you know, the rise in the 80s or so of kind of like the concept of maximizing shareholder value. And I believe even folks like uh, Larry Fink are kind of, you know, at least, you know, on record suggesting a move away from that approach. And I can't remember exactly what it was, but more towards kind of like stakeholders or more towards, you know, the greater good and less about shareholders. Curious your thoughts on that. So in the 50s, uh, even in the 60s, you could hear a, a CEO of a large corporation talking about their stakeholders. When they meant, said stakeholders, they meant they really cared about their workforce, their community, their customers, their suppliers, and their shareholders. Basically, after, after Milton Friedman kind of uh, told everybody that the only thing that really matters is shareholders, 
that really kind of took over as a philosophy. It, it was taken up by the courts as well. Where so, so the only thing that management cares about is trying to maximize value for shareholders and the other stakeholders could sort of take care of themselves. Now, in a competitive market, that probably still works in the sense that you can, you can play off one set of shareholders versus the other. But in a non-competitive market where you're dealing with a you know, monopolistic or monopsonistic market, then they just basically take away all the rents. And that is not long run sustainable. People are unhappy about that. People's, the real wages of people since 1980 are flat. Right. I mean, you know, the average, certainly the lower half of income spectrum of the Americans have actually had zero gains above inflation since the 80s. That's unsustainable. But it's not because they haven't been more productive. They certainly have. They're using tools that they, they're, they're more productive. There's, you know, fewer workers doing more work and getting more done, uh, you know, using capital and equipment, what not. So labor productivity has gone up, but they have not been able to extract rents for that, you know, in terms of increased wages. And that's just unsustainable. And I know I want to get to some of the other topics you want to talk about overall, including, you know, technological improvements and also, you know, an underlying weight for that, especially in the U.S., but also really a global phenomena, which is the aging workforce and also aging population overall. But um, kind of curious how the move away from less capital intensive businesses to more kind of, you know, asset light and more uh, services oriented businesses play any factor, if at all, kind of in, in all the, the conversations we've been having so far. Okay, so that's a great segue to our conversation, shifting a little bit to technological change. Um, so technological change is a fact of life. Okay, technology, we keep, we keep seeing new technology. We've seen one of the forms of technology is what we're doing right now. We're having a Zoom meeting, right? It used to be we would have to do this. I'd have to come to the studio and sit across from you with a studio. Now we do this you know, via Zoom and other online, online services. Uh, we don't have meetings face-to-face. -face. We couldn't during COVID. That technology has been steadily getting better and better. I remember Skype back in the old days when it was kind of pretty sketchy, but now it's quite good. Um, you know, so there's lots of different competing tools. Those tools, COVID, basically accelerated our adoption. Remember, I told you we're creatures of habit. We kept on going to the office and having kind of face-to-face -face meetings way beyond when we needed to, because that's just the way we did it. We were kind of stuck in our rut. COVID took us out of our rut. Technological change opened the door to being all online. And actually now, a huge part of our workforce here at the university and lots of other places, you know, knowledge workers in particular, are able to do most, if not almost all of their work versus by distance learning. And there are still reasons to get together personally. It's not that there are not, but, um, but we're seeing people shift away from that. And that's, that's having a bunch of effects. That's having big effects on real estate. You know, commercial real estate, there is a glut of commercial real estate nearly everywhere. You know, suddenly people don't need all that office space. And so, you know, so, you know, so there's, there's, there's one sort of direct effect of that technological change. But there's lots of other technological change going on. And much deeper, much more important technological change is this kind of movement towards AI, machine learning, robotics. AI, machine learning, robotics are going to be um, basically taking over more jobs that people were doing. And so that's this capital intensive. So you basically, instead of, instead of having a whole bunch of people on the assembly line at Tesla, what they have is a very small number of people, a whole lot of robots. And uh, the robots are putting together those new vehicles. They're putting together vehicles faster, um, you know, in, in creative ways. And they're able to reprogram them reasonably quickly to, you know, make adjustments and corrections. That kind of technological change is actually, so we had this hurried technological change from, from uh, COVID, but this is going to be deeper technological change. This is going to, this is going to move us not just to distance work, but it's going to move us. But, but again, what Elon Musk and Tesla found is they could not totally roboticize the factory. When they tried to do that, the whole, the whole assembly line just didn't work. You actually need people to be adaptive and be part of the process. Those people who stay as part of the process are even more valuable. 
right? They are even more productive and even more valuable. So again, we're going to shift away from having you know, large numbers of stevedores who basically take the cargo by hand off of the off the freighters and onto the docks, and you're going to move to cranes and, and and containers. But the guys who are running the cranes, those guys are even more important and more valuable than they ever used to be. And so you increase the value of those that stay in those jobs um, by actually having them work with more capital. That's incredibly interesting. And so you know, when you think about, um, and I'm just kind of curious in terms of obviously a lot of people I think have paid attention to at least, you know, some of the adoption of all these, you know, software companies during the the likes of the beginning of COVID. And certainly a lot of them have, you know, seen kind of their bottoms fall out a little bit. I'm curious if you just have any comments there just around, you know, the COVID transiency and and sort of what's going on with some of those underlying um, companies. Well, I, I think if there's, certainly there's always ups and downs and we've seen, you know, some of the companies that, that were high flyers fly a little less high and that's normal because people's expectations often get ahead of themselves. That was kind of our last conversation. We talked about bubbles. People, people have their expectations run ahead of themselves, particularly with new innovations, quite frequently, not a terrible thing. You know, if you're going to invest in new things, you sometimes have to overinvest in new things and then you kind of correct as you kind of get to the right level. So I'm not going to have that conversation again. But what I would say is that um, the big tech companies are only getting bigger. And so we're, and we're seeing consistent consolidation in tech and we're seeing consistent growth in tech. I mean, it was only a couple of years ago that Apple was a $1 trillion company. They passed $2 trillion. They briefly touched $3 trillion. Uh, you know, I mean, these companies are big. There's now, there's now several trillion dollar companies. There's a few threatening a trillion dollars. The big companies are really big and they just keep getting bigger. And so that goes back to this issue of market power and adoption of technology. Um, and what happens is they've been successful at introducing new technologies, introducing productivity improvements from those new technologies. But instead of giving that to the shareholders, to the, to the employees and wages, it's all been captured by their shareholders. And so, you know, they've been able to redirect all those gains to their shareholders. I mean, Amazon is famous for paying a little more than the market wage for their warehouse workers, but they pay as little more than they, than they can. And still, they're barely keeping up with inflation. And they're also driving their people very hard. So a lot of people work for Amazon for like a little while and then quit because it's not necessarily that much fun. And, and you know, they're they're... They're driving their people. Or they're, they, they think of their people as kind of like replaceable elements that are, you know, have no, and, and, and frankly, people don't want to be thought of as replaceable elements. They want to think about adding value and using their intelligence to come up with better ways to do things and, and, and to work with other people. And then so one, one last question on that, you know, you, you brought up the term monopoly uh, quite, a, quite a few times and also this idea of anti-competitive you know, competitive behavior. What do you kind of see as an outcome for some of these massively large companies? And, you know, is any sort of breakup or kind of you know, a, a more stronger approach towards uh, anti-monopolistic behavior kind of, you think, on, uh, likely in the near term? So again, this is a little political and it kind of goes with the political wins, um, but, we've, but, we, but we didn't see Obama being particularly aggressive in terms of anti-competitive behavior, monopolistic behavior, antitrust activity. We're seeing Biden administration being more active in terms of antitrust uh, considerations. Uh, they've rejected a bunch of potential mergers on that basis. And so I think we're, we, we certainly are seeing some political movement now. Is that going to be durable? Maybe it depends on who gets elected as president in you know, the next election, et cetera, et cetera. But, but certainly I think that even a Democratic administration like Biden's is actually more antitrust oriented than the Democratic administration of Obama. So, so I think that we're seeing this trend. I think this is a long-term trend. And we're, even if you see a Republican administration take over, if they want to be populist and they want, you know, they're going to end up being a little more little more you know, pro-competitive. And, and, and you can sort of see that makes sense because there's lots of workers who vote. Each one of them gets one vote. Corporations actually get zero votes. 
And so push comes to shove. If they want political power, they're going to try to cater to the people that vote and could potentially vote for them. And so I think I think these are going to be durable trends, irrespective of the political. It's going to go up and down, but irrespective. And so I think that we're going to see we've seen in the past, we're going to see again, we're seeing an attack on Google, we're seeing kind of pressure on, on Facebook, we're seeing, you know, uh, you know we're seeing uh, whether we saw pressure on Microsoft, Microsoft responded by being less uh, anti-competitive. Uh, they're, they're now looked at, they once were looked at as the behemoth and the big threat, now they're looked at as kind of more benign in the in the world of uh, the tech giants, what I, what, what I affectionately call gamma, which, you know, Google, Apple, uh, Microsoft, Meta, and Amazon. Uh, you know, basically, uh, the tech giants—they're—they uh, look like the nice guys, uh, you know, at, at present. And, and by the way, that was not their reputation uh, under under yeah, Bill Gates, yeah. and, uh, and and they faced their own. And and when they get faced with antitrust activities, they actually started to change their culture. So I, I think we're seeing changes at Google. We, I, and I expect there's going to be pressure to make changes at uh, you know Facebook as they face antitrust activity as well. That's uh, great. So moving on to, to your last topic, the aging workforce. And also, you know, I think it has to do with an aging population globally right now. Certainly, you know, as all these baby boomers, uh, you know, kind of reach the, you know, that we we'll call it the second half of their respective lives. Um, what do you think some of those um, pressures are going to be on the workforce? Yeah. So when 65 was the standard retirement age for like, you know, for social security, that was also life expectancy. Half the people lived to 65, half the people didn't. And now life expectancy, for someone who gets to age 65, their life expectancy is somewhere between 85 and 90. And so they're going to live for another 20, 25 years. And so for those, those people, retirement is both scary and long. And you need to think about saving for retirement and supporting yourself through retirement. And that's great. A lot of people like working, right? I mean, you know, again, they may not like every aspect of their job, but they, again, like the socializing and, and whatnot. Now, the problem is that corporations in America, we talked about wages at the beginning, we talked about the fact that they were downward sticky, right? That wages tend to go up over time. And so, so wages tend to go steadily up. You tend to get cost of living increases, you get you know, normal productivity increases. If you're unionized, everybody kind of gets the same, same increase, which has pluses and minuses, but it is what it is. And so, um, so, so wage, but wages rarely go down, right? It's really hard for wages to go down. You basically have to fire people. Now, the problem is people don't really behave that way. People start off being not very productive. Over their lives, they become much more productive. But then later in their life, they get to some point where they get to be less productive. And, you, but, and, but because their wages are, are, are going up still and they're becoming less productive, that gap where their wages more than their productivity makes corporations crazy. And it makes corporations crazy. It makes them say, geez, I really need to get rid of these old people because they're just like, take, they're, they're killing me on my like, you know, productivity because I'm paying them more than they're worth and they're getting, and getting less and less productive. And so corporations try to come up with creative ways to force them out. You know, I, I remember my father who worked for one company for a long, long time, uh, 45 years. And uh, he basically, uh, you know, they, they, he got to an age where he was starting to become less productive. And they took away his parking spot in the front with his name on it. So, so he said, ah, that's no problem. I'll, I'll, walk, I'll walk from the larger parking spot. Good for my health to walk a little more, no problem. They took away his secretary, his, his assistant. He said, no problem. I'm happy to write my own emails, do my own work. No big deal. He stayed working. They took away his big office with a window and put him into a small office with no window. No problem. He didn't care about that. He was like happy as a clam. But eventually, they took away enough stuff that basically he, had, he quit. And they basically, the corporations force these older, older employees to quit one way or another. And because they're trying to get them off the payroll where, the, you know, where, the, where that wage productivity gap gets to be growing larger and larger. What we need to do, now, a lot of those workers, 
Some of them are just retired, but some of them love working. They want to get up in the morning and have something to do. They don't have, they don't want to play golf all the time. They don't want to play bridge or canasta or something all the time. So, so what they want to do is find something productive to do. And, and, and of course, the alternative job oftentimes is being like a Walmart greeter or something. Now, nothing bad about being a Walmart greeter, but a Walmart greeter doesn't get paid a lot of money. And maybe they get paid $30,000 a year and they're worth $30,000 a year as a Walmart greeter. But if you have a, a, an engineer who's worth $100,000 a year or more and, you know, and their productivity drops, they may still be worth $60,000 a year as an engineer, but they're getting paid $100,000. So for them to throw away all that human capital, all that learning, all that expertise, and for them to become a Walmart greeter for $30,000, that's just kind of crazy. And we're, we're wasting valuable resources that, that could really help us as a country. So if we could figure out how to sort of recontract and come up with new legal arrangements that are, you know, where we could pay people closer to our productivity, maybe what we do is we say, okay, we're going to take your $100,000 salary, we're going to turn it into a $50,000 salary, your productivity is $60,000, but we're going to take you and we're going to have you work instead with our youngest, newest employees, and you're going to use your wisdom and your experience to help accelerate them to be productive. They've got good skills, but they haven't learned how to be productive yet. You're going to help them to be productive. You're going to be a coach and a mentor to the new cadre that we're bringing in. Then you're, then you're worth $60,000 to us. We're going to pay you $50,000. Corporations are happy. That worker is still being productive in their expert, using their human capital, using their expertise. And so, you know, there's kind of opportunities for us to come up with, you know, new ways to preserve human capital, new ways to contract and make arrangements. And we need to be creative about this. And this is going to be a policy change, going to be new legal, you know, going to create new laws, uh, going to create new contracting. But I think there's a big opportunity for us as a country to capture this value that's going to make us, and of course, a lot of other countries, Japan has an aging workforce. I mean, all over the world, it's not, not an American problem, but I think we could lead in this and really find ways to keep people in the workforce longer, let them be productive longer, let them you know, retain their human capital as opposed to throw it all away and become a, uh, a, a Walmart greeter. I'll tell you a funny story. When we lived in Japan, we rented some furniture from Matsuya department store. And when we rented furniture from Matsuya's apartments, there was this delightful man who came and delivered it and helped, helped to assemble the furniture in our home. And he spoke English rail, who's extremely smart. We wondered like, you know, wow, how did you get this extremely smart, bilingual, super, uh, super impressive guy to be doing this? Well, he was forced to retire at 65. He was about 68. And he had been the general manager of Hitachi Canada before he became the furniture delivery guy from Matsuya department store. Now, why could you not have kept a guy like that Maybe he's not general manager of Matsuya uh, Hitachi Canada. Maybe he's instead, you know, working back at Hitachi headquarters, but helping the young people prepare for their overseas assignments so they can be more productive and hit the ground running, as opposed to, you know, waste a lot of time trying to figure out how to get their kids in school or stuff. So there's there's so many opportunities. So I'm, I'm using a Japanese example just to sort of diversify here. But again, this 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 type of opportunity is exists as a worldwide problem and an opportunity as we as we see this aging workforce. Yeah, I, I just 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 for the listeners, just one technical point. You know, you've talked a lot about measuring productivity. Maybe really quickly, you can discuss how corporations kind of are able to measure productivity overall and how they do it on an individual basis versus kind of you know in the aggregate for the company overall. Yeah. So so if you if you think of capital, capital has a pretty standard price. We call that the interest rate. And so capital has kind of a price a price of capital. And again, it's you know people think of borrowing money to buy new factories or equipment. So you can think about the price of capital pretty straightforwardly. So humans then basically are, are the contributing other, the other part. And so if you're able to produce more output for the same, for you know, relative to your capital and relative to your labor inputs, that represents productivity. Now, productivity is actually sometimes a little ugly for those of us that are on the near side of productivity. We sometimes see mergers happening 
And instead of you know two people in HR doing this you know, the job at each company, they fire one of them, and suddenly they they've created productivity. But that is productivity growth, and productivity growth comes oftentimes from reductions in labor force, um, and so and and tightening the labor force. And so we see companies doing more, which is force which creates productivity, but oftentimes with less, which actually also creates productivity. And so we and we see productivity growth again as we measure that as as kind of output you know, GDP or productivity, sales, revenue, whatever, per unit of labor and capital. And the capital, we know how to price. And again, then what we think of the re remainder gets shared by the other stakeholders. Recently, it has all gone to shareholders, but really probably more reasonably, it goes into some combination of shareholders, workers, maybe they make contributions to the community, they build a, they build a, new, build a new library. Some of those contributions can go to their customers and give them lower prices. Um, so we can really think about stakeholders being much more broadly uh, entitled to capture those productivity improvements. Oh, that's great and, and very helpful. You know, I have a final question, which is, you know, I, I'm of the belief and discipline that, you know, a lot of the inflation that occurred in the late 70s had to do with a massive expansion of, of the workforce and eligible workforce, including women entering the workforce for the first time, plus of all the, you know, essentially baby boomers becoming of age, coming out of the, the, the post-war, you know, population growth. I'm not sure if you subscribe to that theory or not, but generally speaking, you know, I'm kind of curious as we think about all these aging folks in the workforce eventually transitioning out, I'm not sure if in the aggregate, it still ends up being very positive. Presumably we'll still have labor force growth overall, but generally speaking, as these folks transition out, do you view that as being deflationary? So, so this is a hard question. So in general, supply and demand rules, okay? Certainly in the short run, supply and demand rules. In the long run, we adjust. So if there's more people working, that has downward pressure on wages because there's more people that might take your job if you complain, uh, whatever. So, and when there's shortage of workers, then that kind of creates upward pressure. So inflation is also kind of created by excess demand where people demand more than is available. And so we've seen people demanding more cars than the car manufacturers can produce. And therefore we've seen inflation in the price of cars and inflation, in the, particularly even more dramatically, inflation in the price of used cars. Because it used to be used cars were sort of unattractive because I would, I'd rather buy a new car. But now people can't buy new cars because they're not able to manufacture them due to chip shortages and labor shortages and whatnot. And so we're seeing demand. You know, so, so supply and demand really kind of drives the long-run inflationary process. If we make smart investments where we're able to increase productivity, that is fundamentally deflationary. So productivity is fundamentally deflationary just for that reason I talked about, because ultimately we can produce more stuff with less inputs. Some of, the, some of that extra rent goes to shareholders. Some of that extra rent goes to, to, to employees. Some of that extra rent goes to the customers who basically end up with lower prices because they can, they can get, it at, get a better deal on their car or whatever product or their refrigerator uh, because it's being produced more, more efficiently and more productive than the workers are, are being more productive. So, so in, so, Smart investments in capital investments, smart investments in human capital uh, are, in, are fundamentally deflationary because they lead to higher productivity. Now, I will tell you, and not to get too scary about all this, that we are unlikely to move to a world with all machines. We, we talked briefly before that Elon Musk, who had this vision of a fully robotic assembly line, backed off that vision because it does, it does not work. We need humans. Machines can do what humans tell them to do, but they don't think about new ways and recognize the problems and creatively come up with solutions. So there's going to be limits to that automation and AI and machine learning and robotics that, that kind of people are worried about. A second thing is that people like people. 
on balance, people would rather work and talk to other people than like with other machines. Uh, we see that in cities. There's no reason why people have to clump themselves together into cities, but we do because we would like on balance to be with other people. We like to dine with other people and go see movies with other people, even when we're sitting by ourselves. We want to be with other people. And so people like people. And so people are going to demand other people, uh, even if you don't need to. Uh, we've seen you can do uh, workouts purely online uh, you know, with, with, uh, you know, with tapes and things, but people would rather have like another person on the other side. One of the attractions of Peloton is that basically people perceive that there's another person who cares about them, right? If it was just a tape or a video that wasn't interacting with them, they wouldn't like it as much. And so people like people and they'll, they'll pay for people. And the third thing is that people adapt. I, I mentioned the example that used to be this whole market of people that were stevedores. Stevedores are people that used to go onto the freighters, would pull up you know, big boxes of freight, would carry them off and put them on the dock and put them on trucks for delivery. We don't have any stevedores anymore. What we now have is crane operators who are moving containers of freight directly onto uh, chassis for, you know, uh, for delivery via uh, truck or by, by rail. But we have new industries. I told you people like people. So we have a whole new industry of personal trainers. When I was a young whippersnapper, personal trainers only existed for professional athletes and maybe one shared by a whole bunch of college teams. Now, anybody can have a personal trainer, right? And, and, and now people, people have life coaches, right? We didn't, we didn't used to have life coaches, but people will create jobs for other people because they want to work with other people who can, who can help them. So people will adapt. Uh, and these productivity improvements like robots or self-driving cars or self-driving trucks, which are definitely going to be disruptive, right? They're going to be disruptive to people who have careers, mid-career as a truck driver or, or in other jobs. We can, we can come up with ways to do clever contracting where the productivity improvement is shared by the people so that, we, so that the winners share some of their winnings with the losers. There's a name for this in economics called a Pareto, improve, a Pareto improvement where everyone is at least as good off, as well off as they were before. And basically what we say is we say, okay, so maybe what we have is we have an opportunity for maybe guaranteed monthly income like Andrew Yang was talking about, right? Or we have an opportunity where where the productivity improvement from having robots and self-driving trucks creates extra value and extra wealth that can be captured by the people that were displaced. And they basically then end up with some wage that basically kind of equalizes them or at least puts them back to roughly where they were. And so, again, I don't have all the answers. I'm actually working with other people on this, on this project here at the Lair Research Institute here at NGIT and the Martin Huckman School of Management. You know, we're working on some of these problems, trying to think through some of these problems. But we think that there's opportunities to come up with better solutions that will allow, allow the future of work to be more equitable uh, and basically fairer to all of the stakeholders in the future. And to me, that's a, a perfect place to wrap, you know, to some of the work that your team is doing to help really influence policy going forward. And, you know, with that, I want to offer you any parting thoughts. So I, I guess if I had anything, I would say you need to be, what I tell my students, you need to be a lifelong learner. You need to be prepared to get out of your rut. Uh, we love our ruts, we, 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 are, we are creatures of habit, but you need, you're gonna need to be prepared in this world to kind of get out of your rut. Young people, like yourself, Peter, and, and, and others, uh, you, know, anymore. Uh, you know, younger than me. So, uh, so you know, basically um, are, gonna, are gonna be adaptive, are gonna, gonna be required to be adaptive and, and gonna be required to be lifelong learners. And so what I would say is if you, if you go into this with the right mindset, it's not that hard to kind of surf the waves of the future of work and basically, you know, stay on top. Not that everybody's going to win all the time, but I think that there's plenty of opportunity for people to add value and have productive, valuable lives that go on into their 80s, 
you know, whether they're working or they choose to be retired, again, people are going to get choices and they should be choices, not forces, uh, you know, going forward. That's great. And, and Mike, uh, we want to thank you so much for joining us today. Certainly we'll look forward to our next conversation, hopefully uh, in the coming months or quarters or so. And then thank you to all of our listeners. Remember to visit yieldtreat.com to learn more about our offerings and come to realize your next level with us. Subscribe to our YouTube channel so you never miss a show. And thank you so much. And we'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Yield. For the latest updates on the alternative investing space, go to yieldstreet.com. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you enjoyed the show, feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts as this will help other investors like yourself find our show. If you have any questions, please visit us at yieldstreet.com. Thanks again for listening and see you next week. The Yield Street podcast you just heard only reflects the opinions of the host, who is an associated person of Yield Street and does not necessarily reflect the views of Yield Street or any of its affiliates or other associates. The podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be and should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any security and is not an offer or sale of any securities or investment product. The podcast is also not a research report and is not intended to be and should not be construed as investment advice. Support for this podcast comes from Yield Street. Trying to time the stock market can lead to regret. At Yield Street, our alternative investments are designed to create predictable secondary income streams, providing you with tools to help put your money to work immediately. These investments in asset classes like art, real estate, and legal finance typically have low correlation with the stock market and target annual yields up to 7 to 10%. Welcome to the next generation of investing. Welcome to Yield Street. Sign up today at yieldstreet.com.